Um, hi everyone, I'm really, really pumped uh, to, and just excited really to, to be able to open God's Word uh, with you. I think it's on now. Um, uh, just, just to see uh, over the next little while what it is, it, what, what does it mean to really encounter Jesus? Th- these three Sundays, uh, we've, count, we've called them Encounter Sundays because we're looking at different accounts in the Gospels where people meet the person of Jesus and how that changes their life. So I'm really excited to be uh, looking at that with you. I just wanted to add my welcome uh, to Hongi, uh, particularly if you're new if you, or if you're uh, coming back for the second time after being here last week. Uh, just really want you to feel welcome and and. and Hopefully, stick around for dinner afterwards as well. Hopefully, hopefully there's uh, a, a reason why you're here. Hopefully, there's a reason why you're here. And it might be a variety of reasons. You might be here because um, your phone told you that there were Pokemon to catch here this <laughs> afternoon. And if that's you, a particular warm welcome to you. Uh, but maybe you are here uh, because a friend has invited you. Right? Maybe you're here because a friend's invited you. you. You might be here unwilling, maybe. Maybe they dragged you here. A warm welcome to you if that's you. Uh, <laughs> if you've been searching, if you've been investigating for many, many years, or maybe you ha- just have a slight interest in finding out what this Christianity is all about, I'm glad that you're here. And the reason why I'm glad that you're here is uh, I'm, I'm not a salesman. As you heard, I was an analyst. <laughs> Analysts are the opposite of salesmen. I'm not a salesman. Right? I'm, I'm not here to sell you anything. And, and if I were, I'd do a terrible job at it. The reason why I'm glad you're here is because I believe that this is God's Word and God speaks. And God speaks uh, through unimpressive people like me to a group of people like you. And when He does that, the, the Bible says that when, the word, when His Word goes out, it returns him to Him the exact way He wants it to. That is, He has already pre-planned, He has already pre-prepared what the response will be. And so all I've got to do is open my mouth, right? And so I'm glad, I'm really, really glad that you're here. If you don't mind, I might uh, just pray uh, before we look at, look at this passage together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you have given us the scriptures, you've given us the Bible, and you say in it that it makes us wise for salvation. And so, Father, I just really, really ask, just over the next little while, that the amazing news of Jesus and what it means to come before him and encounter him for who he is, for who he really is, Father, changes lives. Father, would you be working in us uh, who are here, whether we've been here for, since the beginning of Bankstown City Church uh, or whether we're here for the first week. Uh, Father, you want to speak to us and so help us to listen and use me in whatever way. Help me to get out of the way and do your work, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, so I'm about to get real, real vulnerable with you, right? I'm about to open myself in a way that I've never done to a crowd this size. It's something very, very few people know. As Asha famously called it, this is my confession. (laughs) And what is that confession? What am I going to tell you tonight? Are you ready for this? Here it is. Ready? I am often late. I am often late. Now, obviously, this is not so much of a confession. It's not really a secret. Uh, For those who have had the pleasure of not knowing me, um, yes, I am that guy in a group of friends that always rocks up late. That's me. Uh, I I, I mean, my friends have affectionately coined it dom time. (laughs) 
Uh, and more than anybody else this year, uh, jo- poor Jody um, has had the unfortunate misfortune of seeing that in real time, pun intended. <laughs> and I want to show you a few photos that she sent me more recently poking fun at this bad habit. So I'll pop the, the, the slide up, if it's there. Now, if you can't read the one on the left, um, it's a watch. And it says, um, whatever, I'm late anyway. And the numbers have just collapsed to the bottom of the watch. <laughs> right? And she said, this is, this is something you need, or, or you should have. Right? And obviously, I'll let you read the one on the right on your own. So. <laughs> now, I can tell already that I can just feel it. I can feel your judging eyes. I can feel your judging. It's, it's bad. I know, I know, I know. I'm trying to fix it, I promise. But um, one, of the f- my, one of my most favorite uh, countries in the world that I've visited is, is Zambia. And the reason for that is uh, they have this cultural phenomenon called Zambian time, where, where if you set a meeting time, a public meeting time, say, for example, you set, set a meeting time at 9 o'clock, the earliest anybody will arrive is 10. Like, I, seriously, that's what will happen. You, you set a meeting time at 9, and I kid you not, they will rock up earliest 10 o'clock. When we were there, uh, we had a small, um, we, we tried to organize this uh, uh, small community event with World Vision there, we were having a little party, we were celebrating. Um, uh, j- the World Vision actually just distributed all these goats out to the community. Right? And so it was a big party. Like, you know how sometimes you can buy gifts and buy goats? We saw that, give out goats. It was amazing. But uh, we said, be there at 3. The first kid showed up at 3.45. It was, it was, it was bad. Now, I-, I love Africa, that's why, but... Um, we, we know, we know, we know, we know, right? We know that there are certain events. I have a tendency to be late, but th- we know that, even I know this, that there are certain events that you just can't be late to. Right? You just can't be. Right? For example, you can't be late to a job interview. Yeah? We know that. You can't be late to a job interview. That's a huge no-no. You can't be late on a first date. Right? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> you can't be late to a house auction. You can't be late to a food truck opening, otherwise you'll be lining up for hours. And of course, you can't be late to a wedding, right? And uh, I have, right? (laughs) Now, out of all the times I've been late, uh, being late to a friend's wedding topped the list as being most memorable. You see, what happened, it was a couple years ago, and I'll never forget it. It was the the church, the wedding ceremony was held at at a church in the city. And, and, the, and, you know, you get these invites months before. Wedding ceremony starts at 10. Be there at 10. I look at my watch on the day. It's 9.50, and I'm still at home. <laughs> right, I'm dressed up. Calm down. It's okay. I'm dressed up, so I'm ready to go. And so I hop into the car, and out I go. I'm, I'm obviously not speed. I don't speed, but I'm in the car, and I'm heading to the city. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. They say 10 so that we can be there by 10, because the bridal party and the bride are going to be late anyway, so we're go- I'm good, I'm good. And so I get to the city, you know, reasonable time, starts at 10, I got there, got to the city about 10, 20, and, um, and son, I'm, I always forget, do you forget this? I just, I'm circling the block, because it's impossible to find a park. I just forgot that that's what you're meant to do there when you go to the city, you're meant to find a car park when you go in the city. So I'm circling, I'm circling the block three, four times, and I notice as I'm circling the block, a limo rocks in. And the bride and the bridal party are inside. And I'm going, oh, no. And I still haven't found a park. So by the time I managed to find a park, I'm bolting now to the church. And imagine there's a church. I stop. I just stop at the, at the building next door. And 
I kind of like do one of these peeks in, like just to just to kind of see whether they whether they've gone in, right? Whether they because I don't want them to see me, obviously. I, I I don't want them to know that I was like. So I'm just peeking in to see if they're there, and they're 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 outside. They're, they're they're still taking photos, and so they obviously haven't gone in. And so what do I do in that moment? I sit on the floor. <laughs> I sit on the floor because you know I don't want to go in. I don't want them to see me. And so eventually, I, they walk in, and I start to and I start walking really, really slowly towards the, the church entrance. But there's this—they're standing at the front, right? And if you make a fuss walking in, you don't want that moment where everyone turns back and sees you. You don't want that. And so, fortunately, the ushers at the door who were volunteering—they were friends of mine. And so they saw me, and, I'm, and, and I was trying to do this sign I don't know how to do sign language, but I was trying to do my best attempts at sign language to kind of go, is it good? Good? No? Good? No? And they eventually said good, and I came in a crept in, and I sat at the back, and it was all good. Nobody knew anything except for the ushers. Again, I'm working on being late. But, 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 I mean, that was pretty bad, right? That's pretty bad. You, you, hopefully, you're not like me. I'm, I'm, I, I'm probably the worst that I know. Um, but what if I wasn't late for something for a friend, like a friend's wedding? What if instead it was to someone who was really close, like family? And what if the day wasn't a day of great celebration, like a wedding, but a day of great mourning and loss, like a funeral and a burial? How much worse would it be to turn up late to that? Heaps, right? And that's exactly the situation we find in the account of Jesus that we heard read for us. See, in this account of Jesus, Jesus encounters a family of two sisters and a brother. And we find very quickly that this family is very, very dear to Jesus. So much so that the writer wants us to know that Lazarus, the brother, he's gravely ill. He's on the brink of death. And the messenger that comes to Jesus to tell them that that's going on, he doesn't even need to name Lazarus. He just says simply, the one whom you love. Right? The one who you love. Because we see in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. You see there's a deep connection here. A deep love that Jesus has for this family that he probably reserved just for his own family and his own disciples. And yet, oddly enough, we heard it read to us that Jesus arrived late. Not 45 minutes like I was that day. Not a couple hours. Verse 17 reads, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for how long? Four days. Lazarus has been in the tomb. He has been buried. He has been dead for four days. And if you read the account more closely, what makes it seem extremely rude, I guess, is that Jesus decides to do two very unexpected things. Firstly, he doesn't come immediately after hearing of Lazarus' illness. Instead, he decides to stay at the place he was, even after receiving that plea for help for two more days. That's a bit weird. Why do you do that? But it's not just that that's weird. Secondly, when Jesus eventually does leave, he doesn't tell his disciples that they're going to Bethany. Right? Bethany is the place where Lazarus actually was. Instead, he says, we're going to go to Judea. <coughs> Why not simply say Bethany? We're going to come back to that later. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, I want you to imagine right now, I want you to imagine the disappointment of Mary and Martha. 
I mean, surely, right? Surely there's a time to kind of cash in on being mates with Jesus and get a little something-something, right? From being his friend is when your brother is no less dying. Surely this is a moment for Jesus, the most powerful, holy worker of miracles of the time, to prove everything that he said about himself by healing their brother, to visibly show how much he loved them by preventing his death. Any reasonable person can understand the ultimatum that death is and and want to exhaust every possibility to push that as far back as possible, right? See, guys, in the ancient world we're talking about, the the fear of death was very different. It's universal. As one scholar put it, death was like a grim adversary that everybody feared yet nobody could defeat. And really, really, if we're honest with ourselves, despite all the technological advancements, medical progress, the increase in life expectancy across the board. Death today is still a grim adversary that we can't defeat. We've had, we've all, I'm sure of it, I don't know most of you, and I'm, but I'm sure we've all had run-ins with the all-conquering death. It may be impersonal as we hear the news. It might be closer to home with a loved one. And we know that there are a whole variety of sources of death that can range widely from cancer to frailty to murder. And deep down, I know that this is all very morbid for a Sunday afternoon. We all know that this is our fate too. We know that we cannot defeat it. But perhaps in our increasingly non-religious society, right, where religion is considered at best neutral, but more likely to be maybe negatively perceived, that same fear of death our forefathers had, I think is shifting. I'm not, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it's because of all the medical advances, or maybe it's just the inevitability that death is. Or maybe there's all these scientific reasons that there's nothing beyond the grave. There might be other reasons. But our fear of death seems to be fused now with a belittling of it. Does that make sense? Our fear of death seems to be fused with a belittling of it. I mean, we use euphemisms like kick the bucket. We watch shows like Game of Thrones where viewers crave and enjoy the next unexpected death, whether they're hero or villain. Before eating a halal snack pack, we might joke, well, we're going to die anyway, so no point eating healthy. Right? And, and, And... You laugh, right? But I'm, and I'm not saying that these things are, are bad to think or say or eat, right? I do them too, but it's an observation that our perspective on death has shifted. That is, we still fear death in a way. I mean, we don't want it. We wish it wasn't something that was in our futures, and yet we live in spite of it. We can easily plan our lives irrespective of it. Death is a like a whatever. Right? It's a, some sort of future reality, and perhaps... This belittling is jolted only when someone close to home is at death's door or has died. Just to show you that this observation isn't something that I've just made up, here are a few um, wider cultural examples. Uh, Stephen Cave, he's a writer, he's a philosopher. He argues that fearing death is not rational as it simply is a void that none of us will ever live to experience. He quotes a German philosopher who puts it like this, death is not an event in life, we do not live to experience death. And so in this sense, life has no end. For Stephen, being fearful of death is simply a bias that is embedded in us. 
that needs to be overturned. He uses an illustration to, to demonstrate this, where our lives are like a book bound by covers. I see it's already up, right? I quote, imagine the book of your life. It's covers. It's beginning and end, and your birth and your death. You can only know the moments in between, the moments that make up your life. It makes no sense for you to fear what is outside those covers, whether before your birth or after your death. And you needn't worry how long the book is, or whether it's a comic strip or an epic. The only thing that matters is that you make it a good story. In other words, his message is this. Don't worry about death. Your life, existentially, it's about making it the very best story you can, leaving the very best legacy you can. Don't concern yourself with something like death. I mean, you don't even experience it. It's just an absence. Overcome that bias that you have in your mind. I hope you can hear that. I hope you can hear the deliberate attempt this guy is making to seem, almost make death seem irrelevant, like it's not important. Another example, right? Amanda Bennett, a journalist. Uh, she's a journalist. She delivered a TED talk to medical professionals, encouraging reform in her attitudes towards death. She powerfully recounts her experience of her husband, who, who had uh, beaten cancer twice, but eventually lost the fight the third time around. Again, I quote her, it'll pop up. She says to these medical professionals, I mean, maybe we need a new story. Not a story about giving up the fight or of hopelessness, but rather a story of victory and triumph, of a valiant battle and eventually a graceful retreat. A story that acknowledges that not even the greatest general defeats every foe. So maybe we need a narrative for acknowledging the end and for saying goodbye. And maybe our new story will be about a hero's fight and a hero's goodbye. It's compelling, isn't it, that idea? As you come face to face with death, she wants the narrative to be one of victory. Death shouldn't be a failure. Death for medical professionals shouldn't be a failure. Let's change the narrative to a heroic battle and a gracious defeat. But friends, even in the positive reinforcement of both Stephen Cave and Amanda Bennett, if we consider their propositions just a little more, we know that ultimately they fall short. As much as we want to reframe death and belittle its ramifications, we know that overcoming death isn't simply reversing some bias or overturning it into some form of heroism. We can't belittle it forever. There is truly defeat in death. There is truly emptiness in death. And we know this experientially, don't we? We witness it in the grieving on the news. We hear it in the eulogies and the deep wailing of the mourning. We feel it in the emotions of having lost a loved ones. Guys, I know that this is morbid. I know that this is uncomfortable. And there have been countless studies that the topic of death, when talked about, naturally leads most hearers to look for a way out or to run. And again, if I was selling you a product, I'd be the worst pitch man ever right now. But friends, can I urge you for the remainder of our time here this afternoon to sit in this discomfort and examine the solution to death that the Christian faith offers and see what encountering Jesus does in providing not one of many solutions, but what we believe is the solution to the problem of death. Or as this message is titled, the death of death. 
And so like I mentioned at the start, right, Jesus encounters three people in this passage. Two sisters and a brother, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And I believe each encounter addresses something about the solution to the problem of death. We'll look at all three. Firstly, we'll look at Mary and Martha. Okay, these two sisters, they're deep in grief. I mean, just try to put yourselves in their shoes for a moment, right? Both have been grieving, no doubt, for the full four days. Lazarus is most likely the younger brother. And so to have a younger sibling die before you, is, I can't even comprehend that. And I'm sure they're both expressing at least, at least some frustration at Jesus. Right? He, I mean, Jesus could have healed their brother, but he didn't make it on time. And so you may have noticed this during the reading, but both Mary and Martha, they question Jesus about the exact same thing. Word for word, even though they seem differently. And it's no doubt that that question, that thought that they questioned Jesus on, I'm sure they've asked themselves that question over and over again in both thought and speech the last few days. What's the thought that they're thinking? What is the question that they ask? They ask, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. So how does Jesus reply? How does Jesus reply to their distress and grief? Well, to Martha, right, Jesus replies with a real authority that seems to just cut through her grief. He challenges, he presses, and he claims in a really weighty way. See, while Martha is telling Jesus that the ship has sailed to heal Lazarus, Jesus replies back to her, what do you mean? I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, you need to hear this. You need to pretty much hear this as a rebuke. It's a rebuke to Martha. Jesus is saying, even though he is dead, he can still live. Don't you believe this? Now, admittedly, nobody sane would ever say words like this, right? Nobody sane would ever say words like that. If someone is dead, they're dead. Especially if they've been in the tomb for four days. I mean, it's interesting. Some Jewish, Jewish historian sources point out that some Jews believed that a soul... A soul would stay near the grave of one who had passed for three days, hoping to be able to return to the body. But sort of kind of like a postman waiting at the, at the door, right? Kind of like that. The soul is just waiting there for three days to try to get back into the body. But by the fourth day, the soul now sees a decomposition of the body settling in and finally leaves. And so Lazarus now covers all Jewish bases in the sense that he's truly dead. It's the fourth day now. And Jesus pops along and says words like, I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, if you're to say, he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If you are saying words and statements like that, you must genuinely believe that you are divine. Agreed? If you're saying claims like that, you must surely believe that you're divine. That's how Jesus replies to Martha, by claiming to be God. The one that gives everything life and keeps everything alive. So that's Martha, right? But how does Jesus reply to Mary? Read along with me from verse 32. Should be a slide there. From verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. So that thought again. How does Jesus reply? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
instead of the rebuking claim of divinity that Jesus gives to Martha, the first sister, Jesus here is so moved. Jesus here is so troubled. Jesus here is so stirred with emotion that he joins the chorus of the weeping. Instead of a distinct, strong, rebuking reply, Jesus moments, just moments later, is, is speechless. He's overcome with emotion and shock and, and can only break out the words asking for the location of the tomb. Why the sharp and just about opposite responses? What's going on here? It's not, I mean, it's not like Jesus just forgot what he told Martha. Right? It's not like Jesus is like Bruce Banner. Where he's like one person another time, when he gets angry, he turns into some Hulk and he and changes. Right? You can see it that way, but John the author, I think, is trying to show us something deeper about who Jesus is. See, friends, we see two sides of Jesus in this account as he meets with Mary and Martha. We see Jesus firstly as a divine God, but yet we see Jesus in his vulnerable humanity. And his two responses embody both those aspects. His bold declaration to Martha as the divine author of life helps Martha realize the authority of Jesus and cause her to trust and believe his claims, despite her brother's passing. Right? That's Martha. But his love for Mary in the shadow of Lazarus' death overwhelms him to tears as he weeps and grieves the finality of death and someone he dearly cherished. See, in Martha we see a powerful deity and before Mary we see a vulnerable man. They're both there in the one person. Jesus is both God and man. And guys, this is huge. To begin to understand the Christian solution to death, you can't miss that. You have to comprehend that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That Jesus is no less God himself. And that he would leave the throne room of heaven in all its infinite glory and splendor as a source of life itself to come and become a weak and finite man who experiences death on earth. Why is that important to have both? Keep that at the back of your minds. We're going to come to that, back to that as well. Right? But Jesus just doesn't encounter uh, Mary and Martha. He also encounters the dead Lazarus, doesn't he? So I want you to imagine the scene from verse 38. The passage reads, right, Jesus once more deeply moved come, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. We'll pause there for a second. I, mean, I want you to imagine with me a typical tomb back then, right? an ancient tomb. Right? So in one, in one direction, you, I want you to picture a large hillside, a massive hillside and a hollowed out hole in it. And this is probably a very large tomb, right? Because it houses most likely not just Lazarus' body, but as many as seven, as seven other bodies. Right? So you've got this massive tomb on the hill, hollowed out with possibly eight bodies now inside, Lazarus the most recent. And now, turn your gaze to Jesus. Notice John the author deliberately describes Jesus in the words, deeply moved. Deeply moved. Now this isn't um, Jesus just overcome with emotion just before. This verse actually includes a word in it. That actually means to bellow with anger. 
Jesus isn't just emotional and grieving as he approaches the tomb. Jesus is angry. He is furious. He is full of rage. So I want you to imagine, right? You imagine an angry Jesus standing before this large tomb by the hill. And even though there have been bodies occupying that tomb, probably for years, Jesus isn't just saying, take away the stone. He is pretty much yelling, take away the stone. And I want you to picture what happens next, right? Because after a small objection from Martha, most likely a few men come from the crowd. There's a big crowd from Jerusalem, because it's, and, and they've come to, to basically mourn. Right? They come to the burial tomb, they come to the hill, and at Jesus' command, they roll the stone away. And I want you to just try to think about Mary and Martha. Right? If, I'm, if I'm directing a movie, right? Jesus at the center. They've just rolled away the stone. Mary and Martha just behind, and the crowd is just kind of leaning in. Just imagine the anticipation that the crowd has. And Jesus, after a really quick prayer, he yells, Lazarus, come out! And out of the shadows, still wrapped in the strips of linen and the cloth, over his face is Lazarus. Just, Just imagine. Imagine the uproar. Imagine the cries of delight. Imagine the awe and wonder. Imagine how many jaws would be on the ground having seen something like this. And I know some of you here are already thinking, I've seen your faces, right? You're already going, yeah, nice story, Dom. Resurrections are only for fantasy shows. It's not reality. Miracles aren't real. And and that's a valid statement. But if that's on your mind, just for a a quick um, sort of diversion... Can I push back a little bit to you in two ways? Firstly, if you're thinking that miracles aren't real, can I ask at what point does what is considered ordinary become extraordinary? I mean, we would all agree that miracles are extraordinary, right? And at what point do they become that? I mean, if you think about it, the term extraordinary is actually quite relative. There is little distinction between the extraordinary miracle, for example, and say God ordinarily providing. I mean, um, the term used for miracles often in the Bible is is the word wonder, wonder. And that term is used to describe miracles from floating iron axes, the heads of the, the really heavy, just defying gravity and floating. The word wonder is used when Jesus turns water into wine in the Bible. But that very same term, wonder, is also used when God feeds his creatures. And so, yes, it's true. It's incredible if God is somehow able to feed a whole bunch of people in the wilderness with bread from heaven. But at least at some level, isn't it even more wonderful that God somehow manages to provide and feed absolutely every living thing on earth? At least from one perspective then, right? Isn't God doing miracles all the time around us? Right? That's the first thing. But secondly... If we define miracles, this is a common way to define miracles. It's quite technical, so listen up. So if we define miracles as an event that is inexplicable by natural law and only attributable to a supernatural cause, right? Make sense, that definition? Right? An event that is inexplicable by natural law but only attributable to a supernatural cause. And surely, hypothetically, right, if a supernatural being existed, if there was a creator, if there is a designer of life, surely something like coming back from the dead is not only possible, but entirely rational. If you genuinely believe that there is a supernatural being that exists, 
Surely a miracle like what we read today is entirely possible. See, the topic of the conversation isn't that miracles are impossible. It's whether you believe that there is a God that exists. Whether you believe that there is a supernatural being that exists. See, if that can be proven plausibly, surely things like miracles and resurrections would be small fry. What I'm trying to say is if you believe that some higher being exists, why isn't it possible that miracles like a resurrection can take place? And if you don't genuinely believe in some higher being, have you actually considered why not? But coming back, right, coming back, why is Jesus standing for the tomb again? Why is he bellowing in anger? Why is he so overcome with rage in this moment? What has sparked this? The majority of scholars, they agree that Jesus isn't angry with Martha. He's actually angry at death. He is furious at death's presence in the world. He's furious that death takes away. He's furious at the suffering and the weeping that death causes. He's furious that death takes a vibrant life and empties it of all vitality. Jesus' anger reinforces God's perspective that death does not belong in this world. And I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever been beside a deathbed. But if you have, you know that when a person on a deathbed eventually passes, they go cold. They go pale. And as the body freezes and stiffens, the body reacts so much so that even, even the appearance of the person can begin to change. So much so that extensive makeup needs to be applied if there's to be a funeral. Right, the deceased really appear to be a shell of their former selves. And I haven't been doing this church sort of ministry for too long. So thankfully, I haven't been beside too many deathbeds. But I have been beside a few. And each time that I have been there, you can't help but feel how wrong death is. You can't help but feel how out of place death is in our world. Now, if you've ever felt the same way, even to a slight degree, whether through personal or impersonal experience, Jesus' anger in front of Lazarus' tomb against death directly affirms your feelings. Does anybody know the meaning of the name Lazarus? Any ideas? I'd be super impressed if you did. I had no idea either. It actually only came up as I was reading up on the passage. But Lazarus actually means God has helped. God has helped. That's what Lazarus means. And so coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, the entire account that we've examined is all about God helping, isn't it? Or God Lazarusing in a way, right? God has Lazarus or helped Martha. He's Lazarus Mary. He's Lazarus Lazarus. But underneath all that, Jesus helped humanity by dealing with death. And so how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus do this? How does he deal with death? How does he defeat death? Firstly, right? I mentioned right at the start, near the start, that Jesus told his disciples that they're going to, not Bethany, but Judea. Rather than Bethany, where Lazarus actually was, I mean, just to get, give you some perspective, that's kind of like me saying next weekend I'm going to the central coast rather than going to Terrible. Yeah? That, that's kind of the gist that's going on here. They're both correct, but the central coast is broader, right? It's a broader description. You see, the reason why Jesus said Judea was because he was hinting at a broader purpose. 
Jesus wasn't just thinking of one town of Bethany. He was thinking much further. And there are other hints in our passage, right? I'll pop them up. In verse 18, we read geographically that Bethany was just three kilometers from Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. In verse 8, we find out that the last time Jesus was here, that the Jews tried to execute him by public stoning. In verse 53, Jesus had performed the miracle of raising Lazarus. Now that he's done that, right? The Sanhedrin, the the Sanhedrin is simply the supreme Jewish religious political legal council in Jerusalem at the time. They respond by doing what? Plotting to take his life. See, what is John the author trying to communicate here? What is he trying to get us as readers to understand? He's trying to say that as Jesus is entering Bethany, as Jesus raises Lazarus, and as he therefore enters Judea, that whole sequence of events is what triggers his own death. All of this acts as a catalyst for Jesus' own death. See, the death of death, This is what we're talking about, right? How does death die? It requires Jesus to die. Why Jesus? Why does Jesus need to die for this to happen? Well, it starts with humanity needing help. It starts with humanity needing to be Lazarus. Keep with me here. I know we're getting pretty heavy but this is important right because if we're honest with ourselves we know we know we know that the problems in this world do not stem from god they stem from us they stem from the heart of humanity we don't even need to look at the terrors like the dallas shootings this week to know that if we truly examine ourselves and our hearts we know that we have tremendous capacity for pride we have tremendous capacity for anger for war for violence for hurt for selfishness as well And despite all our good intentions, and I'm sure you are great people. I don't know all of you, but I'm sure you are all great. We know that these tendencies still pour out all too often, don't they? The Bible makes it known that the capacity for wrong, that our capacity for wrong, lies at the the responsibility for that, lies to nobody but ourselves. The Bible also makes known that the punishment for this wrong, since the foundation of the world, is death. And like a righteous judge, it's the doer that must own that punishment. That's you, that's me, that's all humanity. And so friends, we talked about why Jesus needed to be both human and God earlier. Jesus needs to be human to own the punishment that humanity deserves. But Jesus needs to be God to be able to own the punishment that humanity deserves. I'll repeat that again. Jesus needs to be human to own the punishment that humanity deserves. But Jesus needs to be God to be able to own the punishment that humanity deserves. In other words, right? if Jesus was not human, he couldn't represent us. If Jesus was not God, he'd be like us. He'd just be another human with a capacity and a tendency for wrong. He could never die for others because all, he'd have to die for his own wrongs. And so for this to work, Jesus has to be both God and man completely. That's why we see Jesus' divinity when he's speaking with Martha in the raising of Lazarus. That's why we see Jesus' humanity at the grieving with Mary. Friends, did Jesus know everything that was about to happen? 
Did Jesus know that coming to Bethany, raising Lazarus, would trigger and spark the events that take place that would lead to his death? The answer is absolutely, you betcha, he did. He knew. As one preacher put it, Jesus knew that the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. He knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own. But friends, despite knowing all that was to come, knowing that the raising of Lazarus would usher in his own death, Jesus approaches the tomb, trembling deeply, moved by love for Lazarus, filled with anger at the wrongness of death, and he still cries out, Lazarus, come out. And literally a week later, seven days, Jesus is going to approach not a Lazarus tomb, but a Roman cross, trembling, deeply moved by love, not just for Lazarus, but for us, filled with anger at the wrongness of death, and will cry, not Lazarus come out, but it is finished. So how does Jesus Lazarus humanity from death? By dying a death only he can die. But secondly, Jesus helps humanity from death by resurrection. By resurrection. The point of Jesus encountering Lazarus and raising him from the dead ultimately is to foreshadow something greater. It's a similar concept to movie trailers, really. A trailer is designed to make you go, wow, how good is this movie going to be? I can't wait. It's meant to whet your appetite for the greater three-hour feature film that's to come. Right? And, and Lazarus' re- resurrection is kind of like meant to do that. It's meant to whet your appetite for what is to come. That is Jesus' resurrection. Lazarus doesn't prove that death is defeated. Lazarus' rising again doesn't prove that death is defeated. Why? Because Lazarus eventually dies again. It's an imperfect resurrection. Because death still ends up winning. Death doesn't die until it has been defeated. But unlike Lazarus... Jesus' resurrection is not temporary. It's permanent. When Jesus rises, he does not die again, proving to humanity once and for all that death has truly died. And if this is true, friends, then death is no longer the end. For the follower of Jesus, the hope of the solution to death is therefore not just some vague spiritual hope of survival. Our roots for the future is based on an event in the past. A historical event in the past, the resurrection of Jesus. And just like he predicted that his death would be temporary, Jesus' death would be temporary, he likewise predicts that our death will be temporary too. And so we can confidently declare with the earliest Jesus followers, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Yes, for the follower of Jesus, we're still going to experience death. But we know that it's not the end. Jesus says to us, like he says to Lazarus, our friend has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake them up. Jesus, Lazarus is humanity by his death and by his resurrection. As we draw to a close, and as the band comes up, um, I just wanted to share share with you about uh, this week in the Chung household. I kind of started off um, saying that I'd get vulnerable, but I didn't. But I just really wanted to share with you something that's happened this week. It's been a pretty tough week in our house. Um, 
just on Tuesday, my, my mom received a phone call um, from her older sister about, about their cousin. And my mom's best friend, my, my aunt, she lives in San Francisco. And over the phone, my mom's sister told her that uh, this aunt in San Francisco, her partner, um, who was a healthy former professional swimmer for the United States, had unexpectedly collapsed and stopped breathing while swimming laps of all places in a pool and died shortly after. The only, way, the only reason why m m my mom's sister, my, who called, found out about it was because she was calling my aunt in San Francisco about another matter and couldn't reach her. And eventually she got through and, and, and she told her everything. My mom's cousin, my mom's best friend, her partner, he was young, late 40s, early 50s. Six foot three, strong, built. And the funerary, funeral, sorry, had, had already been had. She didn't tell anybody about it. My mom later found out that her best friend was in so much pain and had grieved so furiously that he, she lost her voice for days. But she kept it all to herself. She told no one in her family about it. She did not ask for help. She did not ask to be comforted. Comforted. She did not ask for support. And my mum has found it so hard having not been there for her. Friends, please forgive me for my forwardness this evening. But if you let me just go one step further. Maybe, just maybe, some of you here tonight have some similarities with my aunt. Because even in the reality of death, you will decide not to seek help. If that's you, and if you know that's you, please know that you aren't just ignoring a best friend like my mom, no, who's just the best she's able to do is comfort. You're ignoring the very one who poured out his life and loved you so much in order to provide the solution to defeat death. That's what Jesus has done. He loves you. He weeps for you. And the very Son of God became human, vulnerable, killable out of love for you. And maybe, maybe, like I said at the start, I don't know what God had planned when his word would go out. I don't know how people would respond. But maybe God is prompting you tonight to respond to him. If that's the case, don't let this opportunity pass by. Hong is going to lead us in a time of response in a moment. Friends, do business with God tonight that's you, if you know that that's you, will you respond to him? I'm going to close by reading what Jesus said to Martha after she asked him if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we grieve at the presence of death in our world. It just feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. It feels like it shouldn't be here. And yet we know it is, and we know that it is the fate of all of us from all human history. Perhaps for some of us here tonight, we've realized that this is, this is something that we can't have an answer to on our own. Perhaps for some of us here tonight, this inevitable fate isn't the full stop to our life. And we've really just seen that for the first time, that there is life to come. That just as Jesus rose permanently from the grave, we too will rise. And that it isn't just some trivial hope that Christians have. Father, thank you for providing the solution to death. Father, thank you that death has died because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so for those of us who are still just sitting on the edge and just uncomfortable by all this, Father, would you move in us to respond? And I ask this in Jesus' name.